Are you recording now? Branch. 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 Branch out. A podcast from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. It was a case that brought home how much information a tiny fragment of plant could provide and other plant fragments were very important in identifying the house where the kidnapper lived. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs. You might already know the Botanic Gardens has a number of labs, but what you may not realise is just how big its investigations are. Today I'm here with Dr Barbara Briggs, one of Australia's leading botanists and one of the garden's longest serving female scientists. After performing research here for 59 years, she's just been made a member of the Order of Australia. And that was for your contribution to botanical sciences? Well, essentially yes. But what does that mean? Well, I like to think of her as something of a botanic detective. I'm sure you're talking about the Graham Thorne kidnap case, which was a very big item in the news at its time because nothing like that had happened before. The child of the winner of a major lottery being kidnapped for ransom. The phone rang and um, this bloke said, I've got your son and he's on £25,000. Uh, and if I don't get it by five o'clock, I'll feed him to the sharks. Is there any appeal you'd like to make to him? Well, all I can say is that the person that's got him, if he's a father and got children of his own, well, for God's sake, send him back in one piece. It was a case that would mark the origin of modern forensic science in Australia. Now, Unfortunately, the child uh, was killed soon after being kidnapped. The body was not found for some little time, and when it was found, it was wrapped in a rug which had plant fragments on it. It was 1960, and just one year out of uni, Barbara found herself in a team of botanic investigators hunting down the plant species that might lead to the killer. And with DNA technology still a long way off, the team only had a few dried fragments to go off. They were dry, but we are used to our plant specimens being dry. We keep a herbarium of plant samples and once dried, if they're protected from mold and insect attack, they will last for centuries. And it's that library of specimens held at the National Herbarium of New South Wales at the garden that made it possible to identify the plants in that rug. One particular leaf was my uh, responsibility and when I had uh, assured myself what it, uh, what it was, I sh did show that to one of the more experienced botanists to ch just check it out. Now that leaf didn't solve the story, but it was a case that brought home how much information in a single leaf about four millimetres long, one millimetre wide, you had enough information, the hairs on the leaf, the texture, the surface, to be very sure what it was. Picture that, from fragments smaller than a grain of rice these botanists were able to figure out what kind of trees grew at the kidnapper's house. But Barbara's leaf was a dead end. 
So how did they unlock the case? Uh, finding two different conifers, a postman noticing these two conifers growing at the front of a house. So was it the fact that these were unusual for someone to have in their backyard? Are you saying a postman was involved? Uh, yes, these two species, one of them was unusual and my understanding was that in the area where they believed uh, the kidnapper had probably lived, they did inform the police what they were looking for. It was a bringing together of clues from different areas and the first really a scientific forensic case that Sydney had had to deal with. We didn't then have the sort of resources of forensic science that one has now. But since then, Barbara and the team of scientists at the gardens have been playing their part in a much bigger investigation. And over the course of her 59 years here, the science of botany has completely transformed. I've seen so much change and indeed found partway through my career that heading up science, we were able to make change, make very considerable change in the place. And as new techniques became available, it has been a wonderful time to be involved in the biological sciences because with the advent of DNA work, we've been able to have a small part, a very small part, in building the tree of life. The representation of how living organisms are uh, related to each other, what the course of evolution has been. So it's been a, a very exciting time as a whole over these recent decades to be in this field of science. The Tree of Life, a map that traces the evolution of all living things back to their roots. One huge picture that shows how all life is related, and mapping that out is no small task. But to start understanding these relationships, botanists need to know exactly how to identify the plants they are studying. I've named um, 80 that were previously unnamed, you could say new to science. A good deal of my career has been uh, where I became interested in these evolutionary relationships and trying to make a classification based on evolutionary relationships. And to make those classifications, botanists have to really dig down and look at the finest grains of detail of a plant by looking at its shape and structure. That's called morphology. And to do that, they've needed a big library of plants to compare each other with. Here at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, they've collected a cool 1.43 million of them. Thank goodness for elevators. Yes, well, I normally do walk up and down the steps, but not at the moment. <laughs> We're heading up to one of the floors of the National Herbarium of New South Wales. It's one of Australia's largest reference collections of botanical specimens, with its beginnings in 1853. We're walking on the old roof. Oh. Um, in that it, uh, this, we had uh, a space problem and a leaky roof. <laughs> and so there was an obvious need now. Let me see. How do you find something in here? Ah, uh, well, 
So, I mean, one gets to know which, which part your own plant groups are in. Yeah, you don't have to sift through the 1.4 million. <laughs> For botanists to understand the big picture of the tree of life, they've often had to focus on just one branch. From there, details are everything. What have well, we got here? I mentioned Ectiocolia, and here it is. Now, you're seeing here our mounted specimen, one that I collected myself uh, from um, a place... Ah, yes, I remember that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, north of Perth on the Brand Highway, and here we have a place, uh, as the notes say, on deep sandy soil uh, with eucalyptus wandu, that's the particular species of uh, eucalypt there, near a creek bank. Well, we've What year got, was this? Oh, this one's back in 1976. So, a fair while ago. <laughs> and, and you remember collecting this plant? Well, I remember the place and um, the plant would have been about a metre tall. It's been folded to fit onto the herbarium sheet and the large tussock has been broken up into segments uh, that uh, show the base of the plant and then the tall uh, slender stems which um, because this plant is leafless they are the photosynthetic parts of the plant and the flowering heads at the top would have been either in there um, I think they were in a, a male stage with the anthers showing at the time this was co collected. And See what I mean? Detail is super important. Reading those details of form and structure is how plants have been classified for a long time. But the human eye can only see so much. So when DNA technology came along in the 80s, botanists began to see a level of detail never thought possible before. During this period, when we've had DNA available to us, we've been able to realise that many things were wrongly classified and we've seen a far clearer and better supported picture that I could ever have imagined when I was a young botanist starting out in this field. But nowadays, if you're aspiring to be a botanic detective, DNA analysis is 101. Uh, what are we making? Banana soap? You just asked banana soap. Are we making banana soap? <laughs> it looks like banana soap, <laughs> but no. We're at the Living Laboratory event, part of Science Week at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, and students from Macquarie Uni are showing kids as young as five how to extract DNA from a banana. Can you just walk us through some of these steps so I can see some people squashing banana in a plastic bag? Yeah, uh, so what this is doing basically is functionally massively increasing the surface area so we can uh, react the banana cells with our, with our buffers. That's Liam Agnew, a student from Macquarie Uni. Uh, our next step uh, is to add this uh, reagent buffer. It's kind of a like a soap, uh, and so the soap gets the fat and the water to interact with each other. Uh, which lets it dissolve. Yeah. She really wants to do it herself. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so if you want to hold that open, I'll grab some meat tenderizer. It, uh, it breaks down the protein. All right, seal that up. <laughs> got some soapy banana. Yep, so we've got the banana mixed thoroughly in the solution. 
everything we need is now dissolved in water, so that will go straight through. Uh, all the mess that we don't need and it's just going to get in the way is going to get stuck in the fabric. Our last step is we have some ethanol here, pure ethanol, and uh, this is going to get the DNA to come out of the solution. So look for a small, like a white stringy substance. Oh, I can see it. Yeah, you can see it? Look at that. Whoa. Wow. It's like you, you can see cobwebs it. in like oh, a... Yeah. Yeah, the DNA of the banana. Wow. Yeah, pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah. So what we would do is we would then uh, send it off to a to a lab which can analyze it, and they would give us back the sequence of bases. So these are this is what a DNA code looks like, and you can compare two different DNA codes and tell how closely related they are. And that will give you a very long sequence of letters, a code that tells you something unique about your plant. And with a fair bit of sleuthing and analysis, you can find where it fits in the tree of life, like these two Banksia samples. So here's a, here's a tree, right? And you see the reds are the ones that we have here, right? So they're actually not, they are on the same branch, all living things are related, so they are on the same branch, but they're actually quite far apart, right? They're like, you know, third cousins to each other. So what year uni are you? So um, I'm a first year, so my degree is less specific. Uh, I'm majoring in biology and minoring in geology. Uh, so my, I, I'm kind of interested in the broad history of life. And so that's why I think DNA is quite important for that, is it's kind of managed to, uh, managed to unlock the, the phylogenies and sort of the relationships between organisms. It makes it a lot easier. Can you imagine having done this, you know, maybe 50 years ago? I don't know how they did it. I mean, well, I know how they did it. They looked at the organisms and, you know, and these, these two look similar, so they're probably related, right? Uh, but ever since we've unlocked genetic technology, we've discovered uh, a lot of those assumptions are wrong, right? And using just the appearance of an organism isn't necessarily a good way of determining uh, its relationship. Never did I imagine that we would be able to read this sort of information. We, we were seeing such sort of gross uh, pattern. And now that we have this very well supported, coherent picture of the uh, living world in this way, we have more to do to refine the details. But people are increasingly turning now to the processes. How does it work? How does that blueprint become turned into the actual functioning organism? And how are particular adaptations reflecting the circumstances that the organism is uh, adapted to. I mean, all the living things that are now alive are success stories because they are all survivors. They all have come from the same common ancestor at the origin of life. But in that vast picture of adaptation, scientists such as Barbara see a cloud on the horizon making their work more important than ever. I am worried about climate change. We are already seeing um, climates changing uh, fast. I have been very interested in some of the plants, particularly the buttercups of the Kosciuszko area. And there are some of those that are only in the highest altitudes and will have nowhere to go if the climates become even warmer. So how does investigating the tree of life matter when you're confronted with an issue like that? I have felt that the 
best place I could work was in the science and that, uh, for example, naming species is important towards their conservation because without a name, without anything published about the nature of a species, its chance of conservation is poorer. And so one is working towards biodiversity conservation through better knowledge of our plants. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. Next episode, in line with Are You OK Day, we're looking at the Community Greening Program. It's extremely successful and has transformed the lives of individuals and communities. It gives me respite from my parents. It provides me with exercise. I've got a one-bedroom apartment, so it gives me that outdoor experience and also creates a community. Since it kicked off in 2000, it's reached more than 100,000 participants and its health benefits have been studied by the University of Western Sydney. If you want to know more about how world-leading scientists are solving some of the world's most critical environmental and biodiversity issues, head to the science page on the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a positive review if you like the show. I'm Vanessa Fuchs and Tom Allenson produced this episode of Branch Out. Thank you.